Good evening. All right. So tonight we're going to be uh, continuing on. If you've been here the last couple of times I've preached, we've been in the book of Colossians. And we're going to continue on in that series. So we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, if you want to go and start turning there. Colossians chapter 1. As you turn there, I want you to think about something. Have you ever seen people take things for granted? Have you ever seen them not appreciate things for their full value? As I was thinking about this, I thought about um, uh, people don't always uh, uh, appreciate the, the value of being healthy. I mean, they're, they're healthy all the time, and they think they, they're always going to be healthy, and so they have a tendency to take their health for granted. Um, think about uh, maybe a relationship between a child and their parents. You know, the child, or I mean, the parents work all week long to earn a paycheck, go to the store, spend time shopping, time preparing a meal, and they call the kids in for the meal, and the kids might come in and say, what is this all we're having? And they, they take for granted the time, the energy that it took, and the love that went into preparing that meal. We're not too far past Memorial Day. Um, I mean, most people in the United States probably look at Memorial Day as a day off of work, maybe a day to, to go out and to go to the beach, a beach day, to get a day to go out and soak up the sun. And the whole time while they're sitting out and soaking up the sun, they take for granted the thousands of people that gave their lives on beaches not unlike that one, that they might be able to enjoy their freedom. The, the point is that I, th I think that we as, as humans, that we have this tendency when we... When we see things day after day after day, that we begin to treat them as ordinary. We begin to devalue them. We begin to just expect them to be there. And if this is true in, in our lives in general, then I think it's also true in our Christian lives as well. We can come to church week after week after week, and we can begin to expect it to be, get, to be there, just to begin to treat it as ordinary and to begin to even devalue, um, to devalue it. And before we know it, it, our Christian life can lose its excitement, can, can lose that newness that it once had. And so tonight, we're going to take a look at a reminder from the Apostle Paul that he, he gave to the church in Colossae as something that they should never take for granted, that they should never treat as just ordinary. And so we're going to pick up right where we left off last time, so I'm going to go back and just do just a brief review for anybody that wasn't here. So two times ago, we started out in Colossians chapter 1, and we looked at verses 1 through 8, and that's the, the, the greeting, Paul's greeting to the, to the church in Colossae. And we saw that uh, Paul said that they were a great church. They weren't a great church because of their programs. They weren't a great church because of their worship. They weren't even a great church because of their pastor. But they were a great church because they were a growing church. And we looked at a couple things that helped them to become that growing church. And we looked at how they were um, full of faith, not just superficial faith, but faith that they got deep down inside of them, faith that motivated them to action. And they coupled that with love and the love for their fellow believers. You know, they will know that we are Christians by our love for one another. And it's the kind of love that when uh, non-Christians look in, they, they can say, you know, that, that, that's proof that this whole Christian thing actually works. And so they took that love for, for, for yes, their, their fellow believers, but also for their family, their friends, their neighbors, people they hang out with all the time. And they coupled that with their faith that motivated them to action. And they shared the gospel. And that's what made them be a growing church. 
And then last time I spoke, we, we focused on verses 9 through 12. And we looked at the type of person that God said would be, or that Paul said would be worthy of the Lord and pleasing him in every way. And we looked at four major points that, that would allow you to be that way. The first one was that you had to bear fruit or be spiritually productive. Second one is you had to know God. And not just head knowledge, but deep down inside, relationship. Like the relationship between uh, uh, a husband and a wife, where they know each other so well, they can almost predict their, how they're going to react in a situation. Do you know God that well? And we talked about great endurance. The third one is you have to have great endurance and patience. Or put another way, to never quit. The fourth one was to be a genuine worshiper in all of your life. And so we looked at those four things and we said, you know, that in some aspects, that's an, impossible goal, that's an impossible goal for us to live up to. But we saw that uh, the Apostle Paul, he said that there was a secret ingredient that could help us to do that. And that secret ingredient was the Holy Spirit. And that if we let him come inside of us and work inside of us, that he could make the impossible possible. It may take, but it may take a lifetime for you to get there completely. And so we, before we completely leave, uh, leave that, that point and jump to the new material, I want to look at the uh, last point, worship, one more time, because we're going to pick up in verse 12 tonight. So we said that worship, it was not about just singing songs. We said, yes, singing songs is a way that we worship God, but it's not the way that we worship God. That worship is about much more than that. It's about a wholehearted, involuntary response to a new vision of who God is. And it's about seeing God for, for who he truly is and fully and completely uh, surrendering to him. And so I believe that one of the reasons why people today in church um, have a t- um, sometimes choose not to worship is that they come to church week after week and they start to take it for granted. And they start to fail to appreciate the significance of what God has done for them. And so tonight... We're going to take a look. So tonight we're going to take a look at what God has done for us. And if you've been a Christian for very long, most of the material we're going to cover tonight is not going to be new to you. It's going to sound very familiar. But I, I urge you to resist the temptation to just check out, um, but to, to pay attention. To ask yourself two questions as we go through this. Are you taking what God has done for you for granted? And have you lost the sense of newness that you once had? So let's jump into it. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 12 through 14 tonight. Let's go ahead and just read all of it. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 12. And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of of his holy people in the kingdom of light. He has rescued you from the dominion of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So let's start by looking at verse 13. So in verse 13, it says that we were all under the dominion of darkness. That is where we were. That's what our address was. That's where we lived. We lived under the dominion of darkness. But what does that mean? Well, to live, dominion simply means that you live under the authority of. So we live under the authority, we, we lived under the authority of darkness. And the Bible says that the, the prince of darkness is Satan. So it's saying that we lived under the authority of Satan. 
And so Paul is, is, is saying to the people in Colossians that they were lived under the authority of Satan. He owned them. And he wasn't just some pushover king, but he was a formidable enemy. And in and of ourselves, we cannot resist him. And you know, Peter says in 1 Peter 5 and verse 8 that the, the enemy, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking out who he can devour. So Satan is a lion seeking who he can devour. And now when we think of, of, of lions, we, tend to, we have a tendency today to think of the lions that, that we see in a zoo. We see them, you know, behind uh, you know, uh, plate glass or plexiglass. You know, they're nice and safe. Uh, they just bask around in the sun all day. They, they feed on command. And unless you're in the cage, there's no one really in danger. But that's not the type of lion that uh, Peter was speaking of here. He was talking about the wild lion. There's no cages. And these lions were masters of camouflage. And they weigh in at about 400 pounds. So they really don't have to be that strong. They just have to pin you down with their weight until they can deal that final blow. <laughs> and these lions, they would eat people. And they would eat animals. And they were one of the most aggressive animals they had to deal with in the Middle East. And so Peter here, he, he's saying that Satan, he wants to eat you. He wants to destroy you. And he is one of the most aggressive animals that you're going to have to deal with. And in case you think Peter's exaggerating here, let's look at what Jesus says about Satan. In Luke twenty-two thirty-one, he's speaking sp uh, specifically to Simon, but I think it, it applies to us as well. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. And so Jesus is saying that Satan wants to sift us as wheat. And when Jesus said that, he wasn't thinking about the modern techniques that we use for sifting wheat today, but he was thinking about how they sifted it back in Bible times. You see, they would harvest the wheat, but they would also come in with, the, with the, the wheat and the chaff would come in together. And so they would bring it to the threshing floor and they would throw it up in the air and the much heavier, in, the much, uh, heavier weight of the grain would cause it to come back down to the ground. But when the wind would blow, it would catch the chaff and it would blow it away. And so um, the, the, uh, the, the chaff would be separated from the wheat. And so Satan is wanting to throw us up in the air. He's wanting to play with his food before he eats it. And, we, and Jesus is saying that we, he, we are as powerless as that wheat is in the wind. And in case you still haven't gotten the picture, let's look at one last example before we move on. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3. Most of you probably know the story. It's a story of creation. Um, and, and so God cre creates the earth. He creates Adam and Eve. And in chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they're, they're tempted. And you know, Adam and Eve, they, they had an advantage over all of us. You see, they were sinless. I mean, there's a part, of, a part inside of all of us that we have to resist every day, a sinful part that we have to battle every day. But they didn't have that. So if anyone stood a chance of resisting Satan, it was Adam and Eve. But how did that go for them? I mean, in chapter 3, Satan slithers in, and uh, he says, Did God really say you couldn't eat from the tree? And how long do they last? Well, the Bible doesn't really say, but I like to think it's about 10 seconds. They didn't stand a chance either, and they gave in to temptation. They ate the forbidden fruit, and it affected them. They died spiritually, and it, the, and it warped them, uh, and their sin warped them. And it didn't just affect them, but it affected their children. I mean, they had two sons, Cain and Abel, and they fought like sons probably do today. 
They're always threatening to kill each other. But in this case, Cain actually kills his brother, Abel. And it just starts this, this spiral of, of wickedness that keeps growing and growing and growing and growing. And so about Genesis chapter 6, when God says that he's going to hit the reset button and destroy the whole earth with a flood. But he says that there's one man who is righteous, a man by the name of Noah, and he decides to spare him. So he has Noah build an ark, and his, he and his family are saved along with two of every type of animal. And they eventually get out of the ark, and God confirms his covenant with them with a rainbow. And what's the very next thing Noah does? This righteous person, he goes out and gets drunk. And it might leave you thinking, is this really the best person that, that, that the, he had? Is this really a righteous person? But, you see, there was still something wrong with Noah. There's still something wrong inside of Noah. They hadn't addressed the sin issue. And he was still under the dominion of darkness. And what's even worse is that everyone that has ever lived has been under the dominion of darkness. All of us. Paul says in Romans 3 and verse 10 that there's no one that is righteous, not even one. And Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on in Romans 3 and verse 12 and says that no one, that, that there's no one who does good, not even one. And why don't they do any good? Because they don't desire to do good. For if they didn't desire, if they desired to only do good, they wouldn't sin. I mean, if you're honest with yourself, you know this to be true. That there, there's, there's the things inside of us that, that we, we like to do. I mean, for some people, it might be that um, they like to drive fast. And so they look at speed limits as more suggestions than law. But that's sinning, right? So there's things inside of us that we all like to do. Otherwise, they wouldn't be, otherwise we wouldn't be tempted by them. I mean, that's what it means to be tempted. Um, there, there's because um, there's something there's something in us that, that wants to do that. And so Jesus says in John three and verse 19 that the light has come into the world, but the people love darkness instead of light because of their evil deeds. So he's saying that there, there's there's people that are that are in darkness, that are in sin and they love the darkness. They want to keep on living in the darkness. They want to keep on living in their sin. And Jesus goes on in verse 20 that says, and everyone who does evil hates the light. And so Jesus says that people who love the darkness are going to hate him. He's saying, you know, I go out, I do these miracles, I preach and I teach, but I know, but you know, you know why these people hate me? You know why they're ultimately going to crucify me? Because they're sinners, because they love their sin. And they choose to be under the dominion of that sin. And there is a problem with being a sinner. You see, it doesn't end up well. It doesn't lead you to a good place. For it says in uh, Romans 6 and verse 23 that the wages of sin is death. And you know, if death was final, that might be all right. You might be able to justify it. But there's a problem with that. And that's everybody lives for eternity. Everyone lives forever. It's just a case of you choosing where you're going to spend your eternity. And Jesus tells a parable about this. In Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31, it's a parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And there's two main characters, the rich man and Lazarus. 
um, the rich man. He was rich. Um, he lived a pretty good life. You know, he had extra food. He had all the latest fashion. He had extra chariots, and all of his chariots had extra horsepower. But there was an issue. He didn't like God. He was a sinner. He was under the dominion of darkness. And he was a slave to the prince of darkness. The other, the other main character is Lazarus. And he had nothing. He's the very definition of being dirt poor. And he was sick. He had sores all over his body. But he didn't have any health insurance, so he couldn't get any health care for him. And no one wanted to help him. But he loved God. And the Bible says that one day they both died. And spoiler alert, in case you didn't know, both the rich and the poor, they both die. Both those that love God and those who hate God, they both die. But on the other side of death, what light ahead for the rich man, for the person that was under the dominion of darkness? Well, Jesus tells us that there was torment in hell. Them being burned alive. And not just until they died because they were immortal. They lived on forever. So being burned alive forever. So much so that he cried out to Lazarus just to bring him a single drop of water. So that's the problem. I mean, Paul says that we've all sinned. And the wages of sin is death. And Jesus says that if we die in our sins, that we're going to go to hell. And it doesn't sound like a place that I want to go. But I've sinned. And everybody in here has sinned. So where does that leave us? What is the solution to the problem? Because if we die in that, we're not going to just cease to exist. But we're going to have eternity in torment. So some of you in here might, uh, might be familiar that uh, in the past I traveled with an evangelist. And one of the things that we would do when we went out, when we went out was to, to um, teach people how to evangelize. And uh, we would do this by taking people out into some of the hardest places to evangelize. We take them out on the street. Uh, we take them out door to door. And the idea was, um, it's not that this was the easiest place to evangelize. It's one of the hardest places to have success. But the idea is, if you can, be, if, if you can uh, fight through the fear and witness to a stranger, then surely you can do it to a family member. Surely you can do it to a, fr uh, to a coworker in your workplace. And so the first summer that I traveled with them, I was surprised at the sheer number of people that said, you know what, I know I'm not perfect, but I think I'm still going to get to go to heaven anyway. And they were saying that, you know, I know I've sinned, I know I've fallen short of the God, but I still think that God would let me into heaven. But what they, what they really meant is that they were comparing themselves to other people. And they were saying, you know what, there's at least one person that's worse than I am. So surely I'm good enough. I actually had one person tell me, well, I haven't actually murdered anybody, so I think that God would let me into heaven. And in fact, in the thousands of conversations I had over the, those three years, I, uh, um, I can only think of about a handful of people that I talked to that actually said that they knew that they were a sinner. And they knew that if they were to die right then, that they would end up in hell. These people were trying to solve this problem that we're, we're talking about. But they were trying to solve it in a way that doesn't work. They were trying to solve it by being good enough. 
their thought process was that, well, God has a scale. On one side, he puts all your good deeds. On one side, he puts all your bad deeds. And whichever one wins out depends on whether you get to go to heaven or to hell. But it shouldn't really be that surprising. I mean, if you look around the world at all the major world religions, all of them, except for Christianity, or at least most of them, except for Christianity, have this concept in them of being good enough. If you look at Islam, they have their, their five pillars or these five practices that you have to do these things in order to be recognized by, by their God. Um, and they, assign, they get assigned two angels who keep score. And in the end, if, if their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, they get to go to heaven. Or what about Hinduism? They believe, that, uh, they believe and they worship uh, many gods. And they strive to be good enough that they might be recognized by at least one of them so that they might be reincarnated on a higher level. And if they're not good enough, they'll be reincarnated on a lower level. I mean, Buddhists, um, they believe that they're already good enough. And so they sit around all day and try to empty their mind and zone out and ignore the obvious that they're not good enough. So there's literally thousands of people all around the globe or millions of people all around the globe who are just trying to be good enough. But the problem with that line of thinking is that how do you know when you've done, how, how do you know when you've been good enough? How do you know when you've been good enough to avoid the penalty of sin? How good do you have to be? How is it scored? Are good deeds plus one and bad deeds minus ten? You have to get somewhere between negative ten and positive ten? The issue is that no one really knows how much is, how good is good enough. And it's crazy uh, when you think about it. It would be like a professor walking into class on the first day of school and saying, hey, thanks for showing up for the first day of class. Um, so I'll be back in 13 weeks to give you your exam. And it just starts to walk out the door. And the student stops him and is like, uh, is there no syllabus for this class? Like, no, no syllabus. Uh, are you not going to teach us what we need to know? No, no lectures. Uh, what about a textbook? No, no textbook. Were you going to even tell us what the subject on the exam is? No, I'm not going to tell you that either. And so they would just have, and the, with that, the professor walks out of the room. And so the students were just going to have to guess what would be on the exam. They would just have to guess if they've studied enough. And they might think, hey, if I study hard enough, I might pass this test. In the same way, God doesn't give us any guidelines on what good, uh, how good is good enough. And there's no guidelines on what it takes to pass this exam. So without that, we are just left with the wages of sin is death. So if we're under the dominion of darkness, so it appears that we're under the dominion of darkness and there's no escape. But that's not where we want to be. So let's see if Paul gives us an answer to this. Let's look at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 12. So in verse 12 it says, And giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. So he has qualified us. God has qualified us. So guess who didn't qualify us? We didn't qualify ourselves. We didn't pass the test and get qualified, but God has qualified us. And so Paul is saying that I'm not going to tell you how good is good enough. Why? Because you can't be. Because no one can be. Because of the wages of sin is death. So if you've even committed one sin, the wages of that sin is death. But he has qualified you. 
And this term qualified, it's a legal term. It means that you have a right to something. It's like the deed to your house. So if you go home tonight and uh, the police show up at your door and they, you answer the door and they're like, we're going to arrest you for trespassing. And you're like, trespassing? What? This is my house. I'm not trespassing. I own the place. And they say, prove it. Prove to us that you're not lying. And all of us, I'm sure, keep our deed in the back pocket. So we whip out our deed and we show them the deed and we say, see, I own this place. I have a right to be here. And they, the police would look at it and say, yes. This deed shows that it proves that you own this place. It proves that you've been qualified to be here. You have a legal right to be here. And so that's what Paul is talking about. He's saying that we have been qualified. But we've been qualified for what? Well, the latter part of verse 12 says, to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. So Paul is saying that we're no longer in the kingdom of darkness, but we're in the kingdom of light. And if, and if Satan is in charge of the kingdom of darkness, Jesus is in, is in charge of the kingdom of light. So darkness is bad, and it represents hell, and, and light is good, and it represents heaven. So the rich man is in hell, and, and Lazarus is in heaven. He's enjoying the benefits of it. And Jesus says in John 10.10 10, that, that he came to give us life, and life more abundantly, and to have a life better than we than we could have ever imagined. Life exactly the way that he intended it to be. And he's saying that you have a legal right to that. So it was bad. You were under the dominion of darkness, but you've been qualified to come to the kingdom of light. So that might leave us wondering, how do we get qualified? How do we get our name put on that deed? I mean, where, where do we pick it up? So if we're looking at the, the example of a deed to a house, you might say, if, if I want to buy a house, you know, you're going to have to pay for it, right? So you'd have to get a job and uh, get a loan and probably make payments on it unless you save up the money to buy it outright. And you have to pay on it until you pay the full price of the house. And once you get, pay the full price of the house, you would get a, a deed that is free and clear that proves that you own uh, that piece of property. And that works great with houses, but not so much with spiritual things, because there's an issue. that The price of the house is fixed, but uh, we, even as, as Christians, continue to sin. And so the price of our sin continues to increase. And the wages of that sin is death. But the pri- uh, So the price just keeps going up and up and up. And it's, it, it seems like the only way that we could pay for it is to die. But we don't want that. So, so how do we get out of it without having to die? Well, Paul gives us the answer to that in verse 13. Let's look at it. It says that for he rescued us. So God rescued us. And in verse, last, uh, verse 14, um, it's talking about Jesus in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. And so Paul is saying that you didn't do it on your own because you can't do it on your own. Because because what do you need to do to be redeemed? You need to have redemption. But what does it mean to be redeemed? Was anybody in here ever had a gotten a Walmart gift card? Maybe for a birthday, graduation, or for Christmas or anything? Well, the card in and of itself is worthless. You can go to Walmart and pick one up, and if you don't activate it, it's just a piece of plastic. 
But if somebody puts money on it and gives it to you, then it has value. And you can go to Walmart and you can find that item that you've always wanted to have. And you take it up to the register and you say, I want to buy this item. And I don't want to spend any of my money on it. I want to spend somebody else's money on it. The cashier will probably give you a weird look. Uh, but they'll probably go ahead and ring it up. And when you hand them the gift card, they, they might figure out what you're talking about. And they run the gift card through the register and they say, yep, there's enough money on it to cover that item. You have qualified to get this item for free without spending any money out of your pocket. So here's your item. And that is what God did, uh, did for us through Jesus. And we have been redeemed. God says, uh, God says I'm going to put money on your gift card so that you can purchase a deed, so that you can be qualified to share in an inheritance, so that you can know that you have, have passed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So you can't pay for it. So Jesus is saying that he's going to pay for it for you. Well, the wages of sin is death. So someone's got to die for the sin, right? That is where Jesus comes in. That is why he came to earth to die upon the cross, to pay the price that we owed. And so tonight, everyone in here has two options. You can either accept his free gift or you can try to pay for it yourself. But you're going to pay for it for all of eternity and not pay it off. But if you accept what Jesus has paid for on the, cry, on the cross, he will put that money on the gift card for you. And you can take it and you can redeem it for the, uh, and so that you can go from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Everyone in here has a kingdom. You're either in the kingdom of light or you're in the kingdom of darkness. And you, can, and you can't get yourself from one kingdom to the other. But you can ask Christ to pay that debt so that you can have a legally binding right to share in the inheritance of the kingdom of light. And if you haven't made that decision tonight, tonight is a good time to make that decision. To not make that decision and to end up on the other side like the rich man is too late. You can only load money on your gift card this side of, uh, th this side of death. And you can only redeem it on the other side. So you can get... I'm sorry. You can only load it while you're alive. Um, so you can... Um, so you can get the document that says that you are now a part of the kingdom of light. And all you have to do is ask God to rescue you. And he will fill your gift card. Fill it with his blood. So that you can have salvation that you would otherwise not have. So in, in, conclu in wrapping up, I'm going to tell one more story. But Ken, if you want to go ahead and come back. In the beginning of World War II, the American forces in the Philippines were surprised by the Japanese. Really, all the United States was. We've all heard of Pearl Harbor. The Americans thought the war was a lot further away. And when Pearl Harbor fell, the military base in the Philippines was at great risk. 
It was a huge base. There about 70,000 soldiers there. And the Japanese attacked it. And the Americans weren't ready for war. So they did the best they could. But eventually, the general ordered them to surrender. The problem is the Japanese thought that anyone that surrendered lacked honor. And so they treated them br brutally. And the Japanese soldiers looked around at the sheer number of American soldiers there and realized he didn't have enough vehicles to transport them to the POW camp. And so he decided to force them to walk, force them to march to the camp. It became known as the Bataan Death March. The treatment of those 70,000 soldiers was unbelievable. Thousands died of starvation, heat exhaustion, and being murdered. And those who got to the camp were treated barbarically. But there was hope, because there, there was American forces, about 150 Amer Army Rangers that were charged with liberating these soldiers. There's only 500 left at that point still alive. The odds were against them. They're, they were protected by 1,500 Japanese soldiers. And just down the road, there was 10,000 encamped. And the Army, Army Rangers, they get in the camp, and they, and they freed them but they found out that the soldiers were in really bad shape. They couldn't even walk. So the rangers decided they were gonna to have to rescue them. So they carried them out one at a time, putting them over their shoulder until every single one was free. And that is what Jesus is saying to you. I have come to the kingdom of dark, I've come to take you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You don't have to be good enough to walk there on your own. In fact, you can't be good enough to walk there on your own. But I will carry you. And I will take you home. If you haven't made that decision, make that decision tonight to let him to carry you home. For today is a good day to make that decision. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't give an opportunity for people to make that decision tonight. So tonight, if you want to accept that free gift that Jesus is offering us and enter into a relationship with God, the Bible says you only need to take a few steps. You only need to accept that Jesus has died on the cross for your sins. Ask him to forgive you for your sins. Let him be the Lord and the God of your life. And with his help, turn away from what God and the Bible calls sin. And so tonight, if there's anybody here tonight that wants to give their life to the Lord, just raise your hand. Alright, you can go ahead and look up. Then trusting that everybody has made that decision. If, you, if you've accepted Jesus your personal Lord and Savior, He has carried you to freedom. And that means that we should celebrate because he has put the money on our gift card. And it's his blood, his body and his blood. And so we should worship because of what he has done for us. And we should not just worship, but we should joyfully worship because we are free. We are free in Christ. So before Pastor Jesus comes back and closes us out, Kim, would you lead us in a, in a song?